0: How about we don't try and make food perfect? Because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect.
1: If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order.
0: Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Unwasted podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. Did you know that over 20 billion pounds of textiles are thrown away in the United States every year? Just like the food industry, the clothing industry creates a shocking and honestly overwhelming amount of waste. So what can we do about it? After getting frustrated with how much fabric he saw going to waste in the fashion industry, Daniel Silverstein quit his job and started his own company, Zero Waste Daniel, focused on turning fabric scraps into stylish new clothes. For every piece of clothing they make, they recover about a pound of fabric scraps from going to waste. I'm so excited to have him with us here today to learn how we can all help make fashion less wasteful. Daniel Silverstein, welcome to the podcast
0: hey thank you
1: it's an honor to have you here we were talking about before we brought you on i'm nerding out about sustainable fashion a lot lately in part because i know relatively little about it so i always love these chats i think it's just super educational to dive into a part of our world that obviously we literally touch every day but we don't always think about where stuff is coming from I want to start with a quote I read on your website that I love, and it, and it reads, we believe good design does not create waste. Why is it that so much of the world is filled
0: with bad, wasteful design right now? Um, wow. <laughs> Thank you for the intro, uh, and it's an honor to be here. And, you know, it's uh, that was a lot and such a good question. Um, I, I think that we have a fundamental... Misunderstanding in the way we use language and communicate with each other and Mm. uh, the design process isn't complete until we really have thought about the waste. So Um, you know, we talk a lot about circularity and closing the loop. And, and I think that as designers, we're, we haven't been taught up until now to include our waste stream in our design process. And so until the education system and the value system that we instill and, and put into the next generation includes that, then we'll continue to have waste in our design process.
1: Wow. So it sounds like right now it's kind of just left out of how people are taught design, but also how they practice it out in the world. I think so. Yeah. Do you see that changing? I mean, it sounds like in your own world, you've made it change, but do you see kind of glimmers
0: of it it changing elsewhere in fashion? Absolutely. Uh, I am privileged every semester to have interns from all over the country and sometimes all over the world join my studio and work on uh, my my business and my projects. And they teach me so much about what's going on in their process and in the education system. And I've learned at some schools, sustainability has gone in the last 10 years from being a club or a hobby to a minor or a focus. And I think that's a huge advancement and a really exciting uh, proposition. I I think it's great at this point that students are coming in already thinking about waste and looking at it differently. So as their businesses begin to grow and boom, we'll see that change really happening. That's
1: so neat to hear that it's gone from, like you said, a background thing to now a focus for a whole new crop of students.
0: Yeah, I think that we are starting to see positive change. And when you get into the idea of sustainability, for example, you have to look at your metrics of success Mm -hmm. and they don't always just include the bottom line. It's important to be making money. That's one of the ways we measure if something is working. But with sustainability, we're looking at other metrics like CO2 emissions and recovery. And we look at uh, how we can turn a waste material into a profit so uh, I think that starting with that in mind is a huge step forward for this generation
1: that is really inspiring news I feel like we all need inspiring environmental news these days right it's normally the opposite (laughs)
0: Well, it is normally the opposite because I think a lot of where we get our news and and our sense of alarm from is science. Hmm. But in design, designers are solution-oriented problem solvers if they're doing their jobs right. So design is a place where we look at something even as scary as a pandemic and look at it as an opportunity to innovate. Hmm. So we have to change the way we think to see success. And I believe that designers of all different types of products, whether it's clothing or medical or architectural, it can be so many types of design, no matter what it is, the designer is the person who gets to sculpt the future of how that works and looks. So I love the idea that sustainability is becoming so important to all different kinds of designers. I think that's going to be how we ultimately see change happen.
1: Absolutely. It's like you said, going from being left out of the equation to now truly factored in from the start. I'm curious to hear your take on why does the fashion industry create so much waste right now? Like, what is it about how fashion, how clothing is made and designed that it has such uh, waste outputs right
0: now? Um, That's a great question. I try and identify the source all the time. And it's how I got started in this industry. So when you're sewing, you have a standard process that everyone goes through where you lay out or cut out your pattern pieces Mm -hmm. and you have leftovers. Um, I liken it to sort of making cookies. So if you've ever rolled out cookie dough and then you stamp all your cookie cutters, you know that stuff that's in between the cookies. Yeah, um, That's good, valuable dough. You can use that again. So normally what you would do when you're making cookies is roll that together and roll it out and cut at least a couple more cookies. (laughs) So you can get some more out of that. In the textile production and manufacturing industry, when we cut those pieces, whether it's for anything, car interiors, clothing, any textile goods, the pieces that are in between those pattern pieces are seen as waste. So in every single aspect of this industry, we have a fundamental production flaw that if you're making something in your living room, if you're making 10,000 sets of curtains, if you're doing anything, everyone has this pile of scraps. And that's the pain point that we need to identify and evaluate. And that is one of the main reasons that the industry is so wasteful. We don't have a built-in solution for what we do with that material or a way of looking at it that helps us turn it into something new.
1: That is a super helpful analogy. I'm a personal huge fan of analogies and the cookie thing totally clicked in my brain when you said that. I want to dig into a distinction you brought up just to make sure I understand it correctly because I think it's something we don't always think about when we think about waste in any industry. So when people say something like the fashion industry is really wasteful, I think where a lot of our minds go is the problem of fast fashion and consumers buying a piece, being like, I'm tired of this, or, you know, oh, this wore through in a week, and so I'm going to throw it away or whatever. That It sounds like that is a problem, but in fact, a separate problem from what you're tackling, which is, I guess, what you'd call production level waste, right? Manufacturing waste.
0: Yeah. So uh, in the fashion industry, we often break it into pre and post consumer. Uh, okay. And I think in food, you know, we have the the raw goods, and then there's like the compost kind of stuff. So the pre and post consumer in fashion is going to be clothes that have been worn and are being thrown away, and the byproduct yeah, yeah. of making new clothing. Yeah. And because of the in scale of the industries. Um, they're just sort of separate problems but they're very very related yeah
1: that the, is, oh go ahead no totally This is that is that is a huge distinction i just appreciate you digging into that because these things are so big that can feel overwhelming and then i, I feel like our brains want to just lash on to like oh it's fast fashion that's the problem and it's kind of this yes and statement it sounds like yes fast fashion is a problem and also how the clothes are manufactured in the
0: first place creates a lot of avoidable waste Yes, I think if we're going with analogies, I would liken fast fashion to fast food. It's Ah. just inherently the way it's made can't be as good for you because there is devalued goods being delivered very quickly. So, you know, we hope that in a more sustainable world, everyone has access to the same quality of life yeah. and that the you know the cost of things would be more, more affordable for everyone. Totally. And the value proposition then becomes, I want this because I like it. It tastes good to me. It looks good to me. It's attractive to me. Um, and it's also made ethically for me because that's just a standard of practice. And um, so in the fast fashion industry is cutting corners and also using devalued materials yeah. and then sort of deflating the value of the rest of the industry's work. So that becomes the problem.
1: Yeah. No, really, really well said. Thank you for, for illuminating that. So, so hopping back into your process. So you're, you're trying to make the cookies in a better way where that in between, in between each stamped cookie, we can use that material. So what is that process like? Cause a, uh, I think a lot of us haven't seen how clothes are actually made. So I'm curious, what is it like to gather these clothing scraps and make new clothing out of them?
0: Yeah. Um, I'll, I haven't totally cracked the code. It's an evolving practice. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my design studio is my kitchen. I'm trying new recipes all the time. Yeah. I love the food analogy and we're going to do it the whole time. So just. For <laughs> all <the> time. So, <laughs> so let's go on this journey. So I am Always sort of changing it, but for me, it's definitely a process of separating and sorting scraps and separating my process into the textile production and the design and manufacturing of garments. Uh, And understanding that, you know, I don't have to be doing both at the same time. So it's okay to just make the fabric, cookie dough, and then just make the cookies. Those are two separate processes. And that is a really important distinction for for my studio. Um, I'm also someone who just is, I'm a really visual person. So the process for me has to be about sorting things by color, by size, by weight. So I have easy access uh, to all the different materials. And, and not putting too much pressure on myself to use everything right away. Yeah. Uh, it's okay to have a critical mass of material because in fashion, you know, to keep up with a fast fashion brand that's putting out 5,000 of a garment, I need to be able to make 50, 500. I don't know how many I'm going to have to make. So I can't over promise that I can get this material and not have access to it. So just hanging on to enough material to Uh, to make real production is an important part of um, kind of what that process is, collecting it and sorting through it, yeah.
1: Yeah. Not to harp on the food analogies too much, but as you're talking, something that strikes me about your approach is it's actually really similar to the approach of a lot of um, really good chefs, which is they're always kind of in the, on the back of their mind thinking like with these scraps that I'm generating, like, what can I do? And they're, you know, every, I used to work in in kitchens and every chef I worked under kind of had some project bin in the walk-in area where they'd save little herb trimmings and, you know, fish bones and little things. And then it was always amazing the type of stuff that would come out of this and the interesting flavors they could coax out of stuff that people might, might overlook. And it seems to me like that's integral to your process. This idea of you ought to, and you really need to always be kind of collecting, even if you don't know what you're going to do with it, you you need to kind of be constantly in that collection mode because eventually that inspiration might strike and then you can mobilize and make something out of it.
0: Yes. uh, I think that's a wonderful analogy. And, and I think that in many industries, people see, you know, a scrap of marble, a scrap of iron, a piece of glass, and they want to continue to innovate and and make with it. And I, I encourage anyone in any industry who wants to get into zero waste, wants to be approaching things more sustainably to look at their raw materials, their waste streams and start evaluating them for what how they can generate income off of them. It can be as simple as selling it to someone who wants it. Yeah. So, you know, there's there doesn't always have to be that internal pressure of what am I going to do with this? Hmm. But who might want this is also a great approach.
1: I know, really well said. That's kind of the genius of upcycling, right? Is you're putting on glasses that allow you to see value in something that others might not. Exactly. That's awesome. So walk me through the design process. Cause I'm curious, it seems like it's fundamentally defined by constraint. It's almost the inverse of how normal fashion works. You know, just defined by abundance. You're saying we have all these kind of quirky, fun, different colored
0: scraps. How do you go about designing clothes around such a variable set of materials? That's a great question. I've had to identify a couple of different constants yeah. that allow me to produce at scale. So, okay, I can make a black sweatshirt like the one I'm wearing right now. There are always going to be different fabric. Mm-hmm. Your left sleeve and your right sleeve might be different, <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be a solid black sweatshirt. And that allows me to start moving more quickly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like a painter or a chef or anyone, you know, when you run out, you're out. So fashion is always looking for this sense of urgency and exclusivity. And we've really gotten into a nasty little habit of sale culture where, Mm. you know, it's you wait for the thing to go on sale. You wait for it to go on sale. You wait, you wait, you wait. And for me, that doesn't really work because, Often in slow fashion, everything is made to order or made just in time or, you know, assembled to order. Yeah. So I can't put things on sale that I haven't even done yet. That's like discounting my own time before I've even had my day. Yeah. So uh, I'll be on a hamster wheel forever. <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> so what we have to do is change the dynamic of how we interact with selling our material. And basically everything we make is limited edition because mm. when we're out, we can't make anymore. Yeah, And if you want that special teal color, you have to wait until I find it. Mm. So, um, Yeah, it is a little more like an old school way of doing things. Um, When you think about the history of fashion, you know, royal colors, for example, like lapis, were very hard to come by, hard to find. And so they were really expensive. And I kind of feel like like that.
1: That's fascinating. Well, purple, right? Purple used to be a really rare color. Like the purple dye was hard to make. So purple was historically the color of royalty. Is that right? Exactly. Huh. That's really funny. Yeah, My college's colors were purple, I think, for that reason. The mascot was the lords and the ladies, and I always thought that was funny. Oh,
0: yeah, that is funny. It's like, tra- uh, I can't say that I know what my college's mascot was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the, the interesting paradox you're talking about, to me, seems like, in a way, your exclusivity is actually more authentic, because it's literally defined by, like, we made all that we could make with this, now we can make no more we can make you another thing, but not like the one I sold last Thursday. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's kind of fascinating to me.
0: It is a lot like that. Um, even when we can reproduce things, the labor that goes into it is ridiculous. So, um, unless it's one of the things that we kind of stock and always have, it's hard to justify a new round unless you're going to really go into it. So a lot of things uh, inherently, like you're saying, are just built to be limited edition, built to sell out, built Mm. to kind of evolve with the time. And that also allows us to avoid the fast fashion problem of overproduction. We can be really nimble in how we create and keep our inventory mostly as raw materials or partially assembled materials so that we can make like I said, to measure, to order.
1: That's that's awesome. It seems, you know, you're inverting how fashion normally works and it seems like you're also kind of rejecting a lot of norms of mass market capitalism too in doing it. And yet you're still selling awesome stuff, but you're, you're refusing to do this stuff, like you said, of like overproduce, sale culture, make as much as people want. Like you're almost saying, no, like I'll make as much as we have the materials to make and then
0: that's it, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what we're doing. You know, uh, I think that just because we're in fashion doesn't mean we have to use a fashion business model. And the fashion business model is so broken. I really tried. I was in it for about five years. I did the trade shows and the wholesale and I did all of it. And as much as I love going into so many of those stores and shopping and buying things and the experience of it, the actual numbers just don't make sense. And the cycle isn't built for sustainability. So Hmm. Kind of getting off of that grid and building my own foundation i found to be much more authentic to the goals of sustainability and also more profitable um there's less overhead there's less keeping up with the joneses it yeah. allows me to make whatever work i really want to make and fill the needs of my customers versus trying to please tastemakers or gatekeepers or buyers. Um, and and that's been helpful.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, another similarity that strikes me is, you know, fast fashion is known for uh, creating environmental waste, but it's also, you know, kind of infamous at this point for low pay and bad labor conditions, you know, at its worst. And you've made a point... Of, of pride in your business that you pay all your workers a fair wage. And, you know, you can even oftentimes, I looked on your website, you can kind of trace garments to people that you employ. And so, you know, you know yeah. Veronica made it or something, which I, again, that seems like such a fun bucking of convention and really honorable. I'm curious, how has it been to convince people that, you know, like good food, good clothing is something worth paying maybe even a lot more money for? Yeah.
0: Ooh, that is a big question. You know, it's really hard to run an business, and yeah. like I, we talked about the inflation and that like kind of fast food vibe, um, and. You know, it's like having a boutique or your own small brand is like having your own small restaurant. And why would someone come and get your dish versus the alternative? You know, make it as simple as a burger. Why would someone get your $24 burger when they can go to Burger King? And um, that's been my relationship to fast fashion. Uh, Why would someone come here and buy my sweatshirt? Why would someone do this? Uh, What is the choice that they're making? And, And I... I I think that keeping a restaurant running full time is really stressful, you know, Uh, and the pandemic has been a really interesting turning point where uh, whatever your business is, can you send it direct to your consumer? Can you get it to them with less overhead? We've scaled back and reevaluated our business model a lot this year. and. What I've been doing a lot recently is taking advantage of the rich network of talented makers that are in Brooklyn and New York City, whether they're factory scale or someone who has their own operation at home or their own small studio and saying, you know, this is my project. This is my process. This is how I make this. What would you charge Hmm. to make one? And I let people set their own prices. You know, I think when someone feels like they are getting appropriately valued for their work, they give you their best product. And when you get their best product, you sell a better product. And when your customer gets that better product, ultimately your $24 burger tastes better Hmm. and it was a better experience and maybe it took longer to get from the kitchen to the table, but the whole vibe of it makes you feel so good about yourself and the fact that you can trace it to who who made it and you know who you're supporting and you understand the supply chain and, oh, wow, the fabric that we bought actually uh, contributes to a report that gets published for New York City to help collect numbers about textile waste. You know, like the circularity of the whole picture is so much better for everyone that I think... Uh, people are willing to pay more for the product and the experience. And uh, I think other people are starting to think the same way about how they spend their money and live their lives.
1: That's really interesting the way you put it. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a virtuous circle. It sounds like if you if you do it right, it, it, everybody will benefit and everyone will actually enjoy and buy into it. But you have to kind of establish that norm of I I will charge more, I will value your labor more, and I will savor hopefully
0: the end result more as well. And one of the things that I do to kind of practice what you preach, if you will, is live that way. Mm-hmm. I go to restaurants that I want to see succeed and I know that they can tell me every farm and every ingredient is coming from here and there. I go to clothing stores and grocery stores and like pay a premium price at a hardware store because it's a local mom and pop shop and they can tell me where the wood is from. I I want to do those things. You know, there's not every product that you can do that way. Sometimes you just need the thing from the store and you have to let yourself do that and it's okay but in general by living that way i think it comes back to you
1: yeah i've certainly found it, when i can find time to slow down especially with food and like really value what i'm buying and, and and cooking i end up enjoying it a lot more as opposed to something i'm just kind of rushing through or not not thinking about yeah that that's really fascinating you know you're you're bucking a lot of clothing conventions another one i think was really interesting is that your clothing is genderless why, why did you make this decision to make your clothing genderless
0: that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Yeah, um, of course. One of the big frustrations that I had as a consumer growing up is my body type. Yeah. Uh, I'm tall and lanky and really like I have just like long skinny arms and long skinny legs. And that's just my body type. I, you know, eat and exercise normally but I'm never going to bulk up. It's just not how I'm built. And I always felt really excluded by the men's section. Mm. So it just didn't fit me. And I didn't feel fair. And then I, you know, would, by high school felt comfortable enough to sort of like shop in the girl's section a little bit. And that stuff wasn't cut the same way. Mm. I couldn't get the fit that I wanted. Yeah. I felt really? I just felt harassed by clothing stores. It was <laughs> uncomfortable to go into them. And I yeah. just felt like, why do I have to shop over here or over there? And, you know, I'm someone who identifies and presents as a male and I'm comfortable that way, but I know lots of different people who feel lots of different ways about their bodies, whether they feel uncomfortable in their body or they know they have a huge this or that, you know, Mm -hmm. like whatever it is that they want to hide with their clothes. Why should you have to shop in a different section just because of the way Mm. you were born? That's so unfair. And so I just wanted to make sure that anyone would be able to shop and not feel excluded. Mm. Um, as a student, we're taught to think about our target customer. Mm. And I felt like narrowing in on that target customer felt exclusionary. And I wanted to make sure that whatever I was making was dialing it back enough to stop excluding people. Mm. And, you know, I can't just think about how I think about excluding people. I have to think about all ways that all people might be excluding people, ways I haven't thought that I might be doing something wrong. So... By just saying anyone can buy this, it really removes a barrier. The other thing is that I think a lot of people like this concept. They might like the concept more than they even like the clothes. So if they want to participate and support the concept, there has to be something for them to wear. You know, it could be someone's grandma in Idaho, it can be someone's niece in Florida, it can be someone's brother or sister in Connecticut, it can be someone in Santa Fe, you know, like, these just have to be really universal pieces if we're going to actually solve the problem of taking these fabric scraps and turning them into something. Otherwise, it's just a concept and some samples. Hmm. So if I want to move through scraps, it's got to be stuff that people can really wear.
1: Yeah. That's really admirable. It seems like you're really kind of re- rejecting the rigidity of fashion in a lot of different ways. This idea of like, why do we, why does it have to be kind of gender one size fits all? Like, why don't we kind of embrace the different shapes and body types that are out there? Like that's that, yeah. a great question to ask.
0: And, you know, I, I mean, it's its your question. You did great. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I,
1: I didn't mean that. I wasn't like, what a great question I no, asked. No, no, I knew what you meant.
0: But I think like <laughs> what you asked really prompted that. And, and I think that that makes sense. I think the other thing to really consider is that in in 2021, where we are now, you know, your size is irrelevant. Hmm. It, you are how you are and how you want your clothes to fit is just proportionate to the you know confines of the numbers that we use to measure things right yeah. So you're this many inches around and do you want a baggy shirt you should buy this one do you want a slim shirt you should buy this one and so with that way of thinking about clothes it all has a little stretch it all has a little give you know it doesn't matter if you have bigger hips or a smaller butt like it, it just doesn't matter the clothes will kind of stretch and give to fit you and you can size mm-hmm. up a little if you want it to be a little looser and you can size down a little if you want to wear it a little tighter so with that way of designing, you know, it doesn't really exclude any body types.
1: Yeah. Hmm. That's well, just a really cool precedent to set. Like, what if we what if we made clothing that was inclusive instead of exclusive? Just that, that switch you're flipping, I think is really empowering for people, both, you know, yourself, yourself and your company, but also the shopper out there.
0: I hope so. It's supposed yeah. to just be fun. It's fashion.
1: Totally. Yeah. Well said. I mean, what has the reaction been to that? That approach to design of like these are genderless. They're they're trying to be inclusive. Like, what type of feedback have you
0: gotten? Um. I mean, mostly the feedback is positive. Um. I think everybody wants. You know. Oh, I want a V neck, or can you do this color? And I wish I could do it all. You know. If there's someone out there listening to this who wants to. Uh, you know, make this a bigger proposition, you know, we want to grow that. But at the same time, you know, if you're someone who is listening and wants to maybe just like peruse and get one piece, like all of those little ways of doing it help support our business. Um, So that kind of customer feedback is always really valued and appreciated. We sort of steered the collection that we have on the website into what it is now by making it the lowest common denominator, so to speak, of what might appeal to people. Um, something that's been really helpful is just selling masks this year. Mm. Everybody yeah. needs them. You know, there's a, clearly a, a use for it. And it's a small surface area that we can make with scraps. So we're going to continue to evolve and create new products uh, based on customer feedback and, uh, you know, once in a while, if if it's not, you know, the right fit or the right body type for the specific customer, um, you know, I say we offer free exchanges uh, and uh, we do returns like uh, we have decent policy about that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, we just encourage people to give it a try.
1: Yeah, that's really awesome. What a, what a cool approach to business. Again, keeping it flexible, keeping it empathetic and kind of grounded where people are at.
0: I just treat people how I would wanna be treated, you know?
1: Golden rule. I mean, honestly, I, I think that's an underrated business principle, right? Like you sh- you ought to extend the degree of empathy to your customers, you would want them to extend to you as, you know, fellow humans. Yeah, that's...
0: we always try and approach that stuff compassionately. And, yeah. and I understand that like, in everyone's life it's stressful you know you're waiting for your package you don't want someone to steal it you you want to give it to the person for their birthday on time like all that stuff happens and so we try and we try and move mountains but we're all just human
1: yeah i feel like this uh holiday season was kind of an exercise in that because everyone i knew experienced a tremendous amount of stress about how do we adapt the holidays to covid also yeah if how if at all do we shop given that in-person shopping is difficult the mail is totally bottlenecked like i think it was such a, a collective exercise and just empathy and flexibility of like huh maybe it'll arrive by new year's and
0: maybe that's okay you know yeah and you know what we had the best experience with customers. It's like funny how going through something like that is like a bonding experience. Yeah. So like we really got to know a couple of the the people who were waiting for their packages and we were so happy and excited to see when they arrived and get selfies of people wearing <laughs> their stuff. It's so much more fun and more personal than you know, the, the big business kind of way of doing things. Um, and we just felt like we were really in it with everyone. And we were, we were very grateful for the patience and compassion that everyone shared with us and with the USPS as all the packages got delivered.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear you know speaking of patience and compassion you know there's this quote I read on your website I really liked which is that living zero waste is not a contest or a challenge it's a practice you know it's about doing your best every day and being realistic I think this really rings true to me and that's very much how we try to live at imperfect I'm curious to hear you know you've put this into practice in your life and your business as well what sort of advice would you give someone who feels re- honestly overwhelmed by the idea of living
0: a less wasteful life um Another great question, man. These are phenomenal. (laughs) So if you're thinking about ways you can be more sustainable in your life, I suggest tackling habits one at a time versus changing your lifestyle. Um, The lifestyle is an accumulation of habits. So if you can just move one little thing, then you're on your way. So To do that, you start by doing a waste audit. What are you throwing out the most of? Or what are you wasting money on the most? And you just tackle that one thing. I also encourage people to think about waste differently. Time is a really precious resource. Mm. And it's finite for all of us. So if you think about your time as something that you only want to spend doing certain things. What kind of waste can you eliminate? Then you suddenly open up space for new sustainable habits, yeah. and and that is a really nice thing. Amazing. Well said. Uh, what what would you like your legacy to be in the fashion industry? Um, the, <laughs> you know. I don't really get to say what my legacy will be, um, yeah. but there's a couple of things that I think about um, when I am having difficult days at work or I feel like I've completed a, a challenging task. Um, I like the idea that it's an almost uncountable number of scraps that we're, we're stitching together. That, that tickles me. And the other thing that I think is that I'd like this brand to be known as a turning point in the story of this industry. And whatever that means in terms of how many garments I'll create is fine. But when we look at the next generation of designers, I would like to sit in that list of people who inspired them. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, one well said that I, the, the Hamilton quote came to mind, you know, you have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. That's um, a good one. We don't, yeah, we don't get to define our legacy, but I think what you're saying is is you know, totally rings true that, yeah, you want to establish a precedent like this can be done and then hopefully teach some people along the way. I think well, what a that's really all any of us can do. I think if we're trying to make the world a little bit of a better place and less wasteful is, yeah, kind of establish that positive precedent you wish had been there. Um, beforehand, You know, for, for folks that are looking to learn more about fashion and the fashion industry and waste, you know, I think a lot of us these days, we're stuck inside, we're consuming a lot of content, whether that's podcasts, books, documentaries. Are there any favorites that come to mind for you that you've recommended to friends or family before?
0: Um, one of the most important ones I think to watch is the True Cost documentary. It's a phenomenal piece that really breaks down specifically a lot of the fast fashion uh, production chain. So I think for anyone looking to understand how that industry works, it's a great place to start. And the other place I recommend people look is on their local municipal website Uh about how textiles are being recycled near them. Uh, It's very different all over the world. And you can often find, whether it's a Salvation Army or a local thrift store, um, a place where gently used things can stay in the circular economy versus ending up in landfill.
1: Amazing. Great recommendations there. I'd love to transition us to the speed round. These are some fun final questions to get to know you a little bit better and cover anything we haven't covered. Uh, First one is, um, you kind of touched on it just now, but I'm curious to hear a little more. Is there anything you think folks listening should follow up with or explore in more depth on their own time?
0: I think they should look at what they're throwing out and see how they can throw out less.
1: I love it. What gets measured gets managed. That's something we always tell folks with food waste is a great way to empower yourself to waste less is for a day, a week, whatever track, what food you throw away. And it's pretty eye-opening. You'll you'll see it. You'll know it. You can't hide from it. But that's actually kind of liberating in a way. Oh, yeah. What is a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks should try?
0: Oh, I'm eating dinner with my husband at the dinner table every night. And it's really (laughs) nice.
1: That is a great thing to shoot for. I've had an embarrassing amount of TV dinners in the past year.
0: <laughs> oh, me too. Last year got really tough. So we switched yeah. it up and I'm I'm I think it's just, you know, a beautiful habit whether it's by yourself on a FaceTime with your family, with your roommate. Yeah. It's just a really nice way to like set the table and like enjoy your food and Yeah. It and only
1: you, takes a few minutes. No, totally. And do you find you and your husband are kind of having better conversations as a result of that, or? Uh,
0: yes, I feel like we're having sort of like recap the day conversations, which yeah. is really fun because we're quarantined together. <laughs> so every day dinner is like a mini reunion, and it's really funny. Um, and it just uh, it just makes us laugh. And uh, I think having a sense of humor in the face of like everything going on is so important
1: agreed 100 percent. there Uh, speaking of cooking with loved ones if you're going to cook for somebody you want to make feel loved what are you going to make for them
0: oh man bread excellent answer
1: (laughs) a lot of of folks making bread these days too it's like it's a it's a simple but fun thing you can make at home and really pour a lot of love and time into
0: Yeah, I don't know why, like the smell, the sound, the crust, all of it. Like, I feel like bread is love. I wish
1: you'd get that on a shirt. That should be on a shirt if it isn't already, right? No, I'm going
0: to make one and I will put it out. Fantastic. Uh, What ingredient could you not live without? (laughs) I love these questions, but I like really have to think about it. I think salt. (laughs) Yep. 100%.
1: Uh, Least favorite thing to waste? Time. And what is your go-to karaoke song? TLC No Scrubs. (laughs) You you are not the first person to answer that in this podcast. That's a remarkably popular karaoke song.
0: It's a great karaoke song. Um, and It's honestly, if... It's already been sung that night. I'm like, maybe in the background until later. (laughs) (laughs) You're just waiting for your moment. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, "Eh, someone already did it. I don't know if I got this. You know, maybe I'll come in with some Bowie then. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't think karaoke was a top priority for me in the before time, but I think after having been literally like not allowed to do it now for so long, it's definitely
0: like something on my uh, post COVID list, right? We actually set up and did like YouTube Disney video karaoke at home for my husband's birthday. That's, that's amazing. What a great party. You, gotta make it happen, you know, like oh, yeah. you got like, if you can't go to karaoke, you got to bring karaoke to you.
1: Well said. Good, good way to approach tough times. Uh, who's somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them? <laughs>
0: Someone I admire tremendously. So many good answers. Um, yeah, I'm gonna. I think for this, I'm gonna go with David Bowie, mm. and I I think it's the unapologetic, rebellious approach to art.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, a Trailblazer. Yeah, RIP. That's yeah, one of a kind. Yeah. Uh, and finally, Daniel, what are you grateful for this week?
0: Uh, this week, uh I moved and I'm very grateful for my new home. I feel very, um, just fortunate and blessed in my life in this moment. And it's allowed me to sit in this beautiful room and have this nice conversation with you. So thank you for thankful for your time as well. And, and, and to be here right now.
1: Oh, the feeling is mutual. And I also hear you got a puppy recently. Is that true?
0: Yes, we did get a puppy. Um, So we're a happy little family now. We have a three-month-old beagle mix. We're not exactly sure what she is. And her name is Kira. And she's a sweet little healthy dog who's keeping us very active.
1: (laughs) Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a great conversation.
0: Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, I'm on... All of the platforms at Zero Waste Daniel, Z-E-R-O-W-A-S-T-E-D-A-N-I-E-L or ZeroWasteDaniel.com. Fantastic.
1: And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes and on our content site, TheWholeCarrot.com. That's where this podcast and all of our podcasts live. So definitely check out TheWholeCarrot.com if you haven't yet. Daniel, this has been such a fun conversation. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for having me.